0: As any parent or caregiver probably knows, feeding kids is a challenge through and through. There is no question about it, especially when it comes to having a picky eater. But now think about what if that child has some sort of food allergy? For some of us, me included, this is a reality. One in 13 kids, by some estimates, suffers from some type of food allergy. And in that population, nearly half have more than one allergy. That's five and a half million kids in the U.S. As I said, my kid's one of them, and along with my husband, they contribute to the overall stat of 32 million Americans suffering from food allergies. This is a growing trend. Year after year, these numbers are ticking up, especially when we talk about peanut allergies. So today, we are looking to debunk the myths, arm you with information, and also clue you in on some of the really cool and exciting things that are happening at the FDA to desensitize these kids and maybe even adults. Joining me today is Dr. Rob Sporter from ENT Allergy & Associates. So here we go. This is All Good in the Motherhood with Teresa Priolo. So joining us today to talk about this really important topic is Dr. Rob Sporter. He is an adult and pediatric allergist with ENT & Allergy Associates. He is also a clinical assistant professor at Mount Sinai. Hi, Dr. Sporter. Hi. What do your patients call you? Dr. Rob? Doc?
1: Dr. Sporter? Doc. Whatever. Doc?
0: We'll go with Doc.
1: That's fine. <laughs>
0: we mentioned the stat at the top uh 32 million americans fight some sort of food allergy one in 13 kids
1: yeah
0: i happen to have one of yeah, those you children mentioned that.
1: it. hits close to home
0: It hit, it hits close to home and i feel like i am knee deep in all the research the treatments the trials the yeah. questions
1: it's there's a lot of questions and there's a lot of gray areas even among allergy experts so we can try to wade through it.
0: I hope you come with lots of (laughs) answers because I do have lots of questions. All right, let's try. So uh, before we get into my kid or what you do sort of uh, on a day-to-day basis with so many of your patients, I think people have, uh, there's a confusion about what actually is a food allergy. I know a lot of people who test negative for certain allergens and yet they say they have an allergy. So what really is a food allergy?
1: So We use testing to support the diagnosis of a food allergy. What a food allergy is, is if you have symptoms when you eat a certain food, and uh, there are people who will test positive and not have a reaction, and there are people who will have some types of reaction and test negative. So we use the testing to support the diagnosis. So a food allergy is an immune reaction to a food And uh, you know, we often are able to test for those types of allergic reactions. Now, a lot of people talk about food intolerances, which we sort of, uh, you know, refer to different types of reactions. And intolerance would be lactose intolerance. If you eat milk and your stomach gets a little crampy, that's a food intolerance. And there are a bunch of those as well. But a food allergy is when your immune system responds to a food and you have symptoms from it.
0: Is it important for a mom, a dad, a caretaker, a person to know the difference between the two of those, or does it not matter when we're talking about uh, what you should eat and not eat?
1: That's an interesting question. I think the most important thing for a mom, dad, or caregiver is to know sort of the child or the patient's risk for an allergic reaction. Um, I have patients that I think are not at risk for a severe reaction, and I have patients that are at high risk for a severe reaction. So to the extent that that's information that we can get, I think that's the most important.
0: I know that there are eight big ones, the biggies. Right. Uh, Rattle through them for me and tell me which are the ones that you see the most often.
1: So we talk about the six or eight food allergens, or the main food allergens. So it's milk, egg, wheat, soy, peanut, tree nut, fish, and shellfish. So that's how we get sort of six or eight. And those are the things that characteristically cause dangerous reactions. We all have patients who have reactions to this or that or mushroom or... Um, cantaloupe or cantaloupe and, and there are reasons for that and that can happen but really epidemiologically and what we really see in practice it's really those six or eight foods that really have the potential to cause dangerous reactions
0: is there one that's more common than the others
1: they're all common i think an interesting thing to note is that each allergen sort of has what we call a natural history or a natural progression for example milk and egg allergy kids almost always outgrow Peanut allergy tends to be a little bit more persistent, and shellfish allergy tends to start when kids are older. Sometimes even in their teens or twenties. So each allergy sort of has its own natural progression.
0: Is that shellfish that you said that? Yes. That's so interesting because my husband is an allergic person. Okay. He has an almond allergy, which sent him to the hospital when he was five mm. or so. Uh, so he has avoided almonds his whole okay. life, and shellfish, yeah. and. He has avoided shellfish his whole life, pretty much, but as an adult, so early 30s, okay. is when things started to get worse. So he used to be able to have clams and mussels and oysters, mm-hmm. which are not, I believe, technically considered shellfish, or do you group the, them so as such? So they
1: are shellfish. Uh, they are mollusks, which are a different group of shellfish, and then you have crustaceans, which are shrimp, crab, and lobster. So
0: Yeah, so he hasn't been mm-hmm. able to have shrimp, crab, and lobster uh, his whole life, yeah. but he has been able to have lo- uh, oysters, right. mussels, et cetera. Now he can't. Now it gives him what he likens to a heart attack, but he's never had a heart attack. He says he feels like his body is sort of collapsing. Yeah.
1: So it's definitely an allergen that can change or get worse in adulthood.
0: So interesting. Okay. So um, I mentioned that my husband is uh, an allergic person. Mm -hmm. So I have a kid that has allergies. The guidance that was given to me with my son Matthew was that when we started introducing solids to him. to Try with those foods that we knew my husband had an allergy to first, specifically tree nuts, because uh, there's an almond allergy okay. there. See how we did. So we did, okay. and his face blew up. Hmm. I mean, actually it was the bottom half of his face, but full hives. Okay. So we thought, nice. we're going to stay away right. from this. Okay. But we did peanuts, no issue, which I was super happy about because Good. I know how pervasive that one right. can be. Um, and we kind of worked our way through eggs and milk and all, no hmm. issues. But sure. when it came to the... Almond allergy, I thought, well, if, one, if, my, if my husband mm-hmm. has it, hey, he, he's right, 50% right. of this equation. Right. So maybe my son would have it too. So I took him to an allergist. And we did skin testing. Okay. Came back positive. So as of six months old, we had been avoiding cashews, pistachios, almonds. And we were hesitant on the other tree nuts. But he had been having peanuts since the age of six months with no reaction whatsoever. Okay. Until he hit a year. Hmm. And then all of a sudden, the world flipped on a dime. Right. Do you ever see that where a kid has been exposed to something for a significant amount of time with no sign and then all of a sudden an allergy appears?
1: So we do. So a very common question I get, just general overall question is, I've had peanuts before or I used this face cream before or I had amoxicillin in the past. I can't be allergic to it. But actually, the way allergies work is there's typically a sensitization phase where your immune system sort of gets geared up for the reaction and then there's an allergic response where then when you're exposed you have the allergic reaction now babies you know sometimes they have their first reaction on the first try of something that's because they were probably sensitized in utero or with breast milk but uh, we do see that and we do see kids develop uh you know, I, I have kids who have had peanut for a month or two and they were fine. And I have kids with the first taste of peanut they have reaction. So unfortunately, that's not uncommon.
0: So with Matthew, we did the skin test first. Mm-hmm. Um, it came back. It was uh, it was reactive, but it wasn't I mean, look, it wasn't massive, but mm-hmm. it was roughly the size of the histamine, I guess, mm-hmm. that, they, that okay. you guys dot on. Right. Uh, so then we did blood work, okay. which is, was a lovely experience, let yeah. me just say on a year.
1: Yeah, it's baby. Uh, and the tough. people
0: that did it were lovely, but they said to me their secret weapon was baby shark. My kid took one look at that video <laughs> and looked in the, at the woman in the face and started screaming like I have never seen like like you're going to have to come up with something better than baby shark if you're going to you know prick a little kid with a needle. Baby
1: shark doesn't work for everybody. No,
0: it doesn't work. So we did the the the, the blood work mm-hmm. and actually the highest thing that came up was peanuts.
1: Hmm.
0: Almonds? Was not that high. Okay. Hazelnuts were, were, of the tree nuts, hazelnuts were the highest, cashews, then almonds. Okay. Um, and then peanuts came up, uh, there were three on that hmm. scale from zero to 100. My understanding is the number that you get on the blood test. Is not indicative of how severe the reaction will be. That's correct. Is that right?
1: That's correct. So, the number on the, so one of the first questions I get all the time is, well, what's the better test? Because why wouldn't we just do that test, right? But the skin test and the blood test both add value. You know, we look at three things and we try and decide if a kid's allergic or not. We look at the skin test, we look at the blood test, and most importantly, we look at the story. So, your child had a reaction to peanut. So, obviously, the likelihood that he's peanut allergic is very high. Um, The blood test and the skin test both have their merits, and what the number tells us is how likely a patient is to have an allergic reaction. It doesn't tell us anything about the severity, and I think that's important, because we don't want to law anyone into a false sense of security and say, well, the egg was only 1.2, he can't have anaphylaxis, right? And that's not true, because those antibodies, which are measured by the blood test or skin test, indicate the uh, possibility to have anaphylaxis. So it indicates a, a likelihood they'll have a reaction.
0: So a kid could register as a 99 and not have anaphylaxis. Correct. And a kid could register as a 1 and, and, and have it.
1: Correct. Now, you know, my gut tells me a kid with a 99 is maybe a little bit more <laughs> yeah. at risk, but uh, correct. It's really the likelihood of reaction. He could just have hives.
0: So my son uh, with tree nuts was mm-hmm. always hives. Right. That's what we've experienced. Right. It had not progressed beyond that, except for peanuts. I told you, he had Hmm. it for six months. I mean, he must have had it 50 times. I was giving him peanuts and everything. But one day, I gave him a Larabar, and he threw up. And I was like, that's odd. But he threw, so I was giving him peanuts almost every day for four or five weeks. He was throwing up every day. And I'm like, ooh, Hmm. must be, uh, stupid me, first-time mom, thinking, maybe it's environmental allergies. Maybe he's allergic to something outside. He's got a runny nose. I don't know. S- silly me. Right. Let's just keep giving him right. thing. And then when we did the blood work, okay. that's what it came up All with. Right. Um, we've now since done two food challenges, which okay. I understand good. is sort of the graduated um, version of the testing, right? So yeah,
1: so that's sort of the definitive test. If we're not sure, we do a food challenge.
0: We haven't done it on peanuts yet, but we've done almonds and cashews. Great. Almonds and cashews. We He sailed through it like nothing. Okay, good. Which was fantastic. Wouldn't you know it, I bring my kid home the doctor's prescription was every other day he gets two teaspoons of almond butter or cashews okay we've been doing that for the last month and a half and then all of a sudden he started to break out into hives with cashews Hmm. so it seems like something is going on inside my kid's body that is causing him to be reactive at random times and while it's so confusing for me i understand from talking to other allergists that this actually isn't that uncommon that a kid could get through a food challenge and still be allergic to something
1: so uh, there are a variety of, of things that come up there and one of the most important uh, points that uh, we can get at is that you know when we do a food challenge and this might be a good time to sort of talk about introducing foods if, yeah. if you want to talk a little bit about yeah. that so there was this big study in 2015 in the new england journal of medicine probably one of the biggest studies in our field in, in a long time and it was called the leap study learning early about peanut and that Came from an observation that Jewish kids in Israel had a lot less peanut allergy than Jewish kids in the UK. And the observation they made is that Jewish kids in Israel grow up eating this ki- this uh, snack called bamba. Essentially, it's like a puff made of peanut.
0: We have it in the states, I right? Mean, we Trader have Trader Joe's gets, even has like a version of it. That's
1: why it's yeah. become very popular due to that study. So they realized that in, you know in Israel infants are getting peanut which is really not what we had been doing for many years in the United States or in other westernized uh, countries. So anyway, so they make this observation, I think maybe the recommendations to avoid allergenic foods because, you know, 10 years ago, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the Allergy Society, we all thought, well, maybe if you don't give kids allergenic foods, you'll sort of get them past this period where they can develop allergies and then you'll be fine. Well, it turns out that was the absolute wrong idea. And we've learned through the LEAP study that giving kids allergenic foods, I mean, that study was particularly about peanut, early remarkably decreases their likelihood of developing allergies. But one of the key things is it's not a one and done. You know, you don't take a six month old, give them peanut if they're fine, don't give them peanut until they're three years old. You have to, as your allergist sounds like gave you some very good advice, go home and give him the allergens. I tell my patients at least a couple times a week to sort of maintain tolerance. Now sort of the, the other thing you're getting at, um, sometimes kids still develop allergies despite the best um, you know, efforts, and sometimes we just have these kids who are sort of on the border of allergic or not allergic, and it's a little murky.
0: So for those who are on the border of allergic and not allergic, doing what is effectively a low-dose treatment, yes? No?
1: Well, are you asking if that is Yeah, the, I mean, if yeah. you're
0: giving your kid uh, a measured amount a couple times a week, isn't that similar to low-dose therapy?
1: So what we're talking about is a kid who is not allergic. So let's say um, I give a kid peanut in my office or let's say i have a kid with eczema and mom comes in and says oh he's already eating peanuts I say, great so make sure you give it to him oh, a couple I times a week okay
0: so a kid so has not already yeah, shown yeah, that they might yeah so we're talking
1: about kids who are not allergic
0: okay for a kid there where maybe the skin test has showed something the blood work has showed mm-hmm. a little something but they haven't shown an outward reaction yet meaning they haven't broken out into hives they're not vomiting right uh, certainly no breathing issues what do you say then? Is it worthwhile to continue to give them to stave? Is there a way to stave off that allergy?
1: So you, you mentioned a kid who has not shown a reaction. So you mean a kid who has had the food before? Because yeah. we're, ta- we're going to talk about two different types of kids. So you're talking about a kid who has had the food before. So, you know, the child's eating peanuts and not having any issues. They should most assuredly keep eating peanut. Now, there are certain markers of kids who are more likely to develop peanut allergies, such as having other food allergies, especially egg allergy, or having bad eczema. Those kids, it's critical. I mean, if you have a kid who is from a family with no allergies and doesn't have eczema or any other allergies, it's probably not as immunologically critical to keep peanut in their diet. Mm -hmm. But those kids who are very uh, at risk, we want them to have the peanut in their diet at least a couple times a week. Now, if you have a kid that has not had the food, that's a little bit different. And from the LEAP study, there's actually a recommendation and this was the first time we ever had a recommendation for preemptive allergy testing in a kid who has never had the food. So there was a recommendation for kids with moderate to severe eczema or egg allergy to get a test for peanut to see if mm. they – to sort of gauge their likelihood of being allergic. So so let's say uh, – Matthew
0: had moderate to severe eczema, no egg allergy. Okay. And he was a breastfed baby.
1: So did he um, – did they? Do, did you do the test before you gave him peanut? No. Okay, so if I know, only
0: did the test because he started vomiting, so so I was like, you, "Well, something's but up." But he was eating it.
1: He was eating yeah. it, right? So if the kid has never had peanut, we put the skin test on, and the skin test I tell parents gives us one of three outcomes: negative, in which case we say fantastic, go home and give give the child peanut at home; positive, and we define that as uh, about seven millimeters of a skin test. In which case we say, yeah, this kid's probably allergic, or in the middle, and sort of an indeterminate or middle ground skin test. Those which would it be
0: like what, like a two, three?
1: So uh, on the skin test, we're talking about three to seven millimeters, and in diameter of the bump uh, on the skin prick. And those kids get a food challenge. So those kids come in, and we give them a food challenge for peanut because it is so important to find out if the kid can tolerate peanut or not and this is another new thing this you know prior to this study coming out we weren't really doing food challenges on babies but the leap study had shown us that we you know we can safely do food challenges in young children
0: that is so fascinating to me in part because i didn't do it that way right like mine's sort of been a jumbled mess but when i look at my son from the outset he has the eczema Mm -hmm. We're in a family where there is somebody who's already allergic. Right. Um, he had, we think, other food allergies. He okay. showed the the propensity toward the almond allergy. Right. Um So uh, some of those conditions are already ripe for there being more al- sure. al- the possibility right. of more allergies. Right. And then the peanut reared its ugly head. Um, I had read a stat that said that if a child is allergic to one food, there's like a 40% chance that they are allergic to other foods as well. Um, I had also heard from my doctor, and I'd like to get your thoughts on this, that there are allergies, tree and peanut allergies specifically, that kids can outgrow. She had mentioned to me the stat of 20% of kids outgrow their almond allergy Mm -hmm. and roughly 10 to 15 outgrow their peanut allergy. I don't know the citation for that, so full disclosure. Yeah. It said to me in passing, and I've been clinging to it like it's, you know, for dear life. Right, <laughs> I'm right. praying that my kid is a special one that outgrows all this stuff. Is that your experience? Yeah, is that true? So it's
1: about one out of five uh, generally with peanut and nut allergies. Um, you know, I had a kid uh, last week, a very young baby who outgrew a cashew allergy, which tends to be a pretty significant allergy before she was two. She had a very significant reaction and a very positive skin test, and she outgrew it. I gave her a cashew challenge in my office. So the probability of outgrowing nut allergies is not zero. It's, you know, one out of five-ish.
0: So that leads us to to the treatments that are out there right now. So we did the food challenge, we've okay. done the blood test, we've done um, the, uh, short of like spinning his DNA in okay. a way, right. way to like shake this right. out. Um, we actually, I took my son to Sinai mm-hmm. um, because my understanding is that in terms of institutions that are leading the charge in treating mm-hmm. allergies, right. the Jaffe Institute and Sinai as a whole
1: yeah, absolutely.
0: is a world-renowned institution for this type of stuff. Definitely. So we, we went there. And we did a skin test for peanuts, Mm -hmm. and he was reactive, not too reactive. His bump, if I remember correctly, was like in the two to three range, Um, and that was it. So we're considering OIT for my Mm -hmm. son. On the outset, and I want to get your thoughts on this as an allergist, because on the outset, this seems so promising for anybody who is not aware. I'll let you describe what OIT is, but it seems like this is the silver bullet. But then they explained to me the commitment and the, the lifelong commitment that OIT takes. Um, and so now I'm scared blankless. So <laughs>
1: right.
0: explain to people what OIT is, because that's the one I think that people are talking about the most. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to get into the federally approved um, treatments that are coming right. up.
1: Right. So OIT is oral immunotherapy. So if we think of immunotherapy, immunotherapy is a treatment that sort of modifies the immune system and sort of the classic example of that is allergy shots. We call that subcutaneous under the skin immunotherapy. And we've been giving allergy shots for decades and decades uh, for environmental allergens. And they work great. And I had allergy shots when I was 10 and my allergies are gone and my asthma has gone. The problem is when you give them for food allergens, and this has been you know tested uh, a decade or two ago, the risk of an allergic reaction, a risk of anaphylaxis to the shot, was extremely high. It was unsuitably high and uh, we can't do that. So oral immunotherapy is a means of taking the food or the allergen, you know, ingesting it and uh, sort of developing a tolerance to it.
0: Okay. Um, we should mention that this is not curative, correct?
1: Correct. So we talk about two different words in allergy. We talk about desensitization and tolerance sort of suggests that you are not allergic anymore that you can have a peanut on Monday and not have one for three weeks and have one then and you won't be allergic or react anymore desensitization is typically a temporary state you know the classic example is we take a patient in the hospital who's allergic to penicillin we can desensitize them and they can take it they can go home and take penicillin every day but as soon as they stop taking penicillin for a day or two they're allergic again because their immune system has sort of been given the allergen slowly and safely, and they remain in a desensitized state until they, they stop taking the allergen. So, one of the big questions is you know, these desensitization approaches are any of them going to lead to uh, tolerance?
0: When we talk about desensitization, um, and this is going to sound perhaps silly, but When you do it and then you stop and then you try to do it again, are you sort of fortifying the allergic antibody or whatever the correct terminology is? I mean, are you in any way making the situation worse? Um, Are you making your child or or, or yourself more reactive in the future because you've done something you haven't done something? something I don't
1: think you're making your child in the long term worse. Uh, You know when I. When I have my patients on allergy shots, if they have asthma, you know, the way I explain it is I say, you know, it's very important to keep your asthma controlled because until the shots work, I'm just injecting you with stuff you're allergic to. So until the desensitization or the tolerance sort of starts to kick in and uh, they can sort of provoke a reaction. So if you look at IGE, that's the allergic antibody, you know, that's high if you have allergies. And if you look at it as people undergo desensitization, Uh, It goes up a little bit and then eventually it goes way down. And so I would say in the short term, you are giving kids things they're allergic to. So the system can, you know, gear up a little bit, but I don't think you're, I think your question is, are you doing any damage long term? And I'd say, no, there's no evidence for that.
0: Okay. That's a good sign. Um, When I mentioned the lifestyle, uh, because OIT or low dose therapy is not a one and done, as you mentioned, right? So it's not like you go to the doctor and they give you a little peanut butter, they give you right. a little almond butter, you go on your merry merry way, and you come back in six months right. and poof, everybody's good. It doesn't work like that. And that was made very clear to me when we went to the yep. appointment at Sinai that yeah. hey, if you're taking this on, and they were pretty serious, like, mm-hmm. if you're taking this on, this is a serious, potentially lifelong commitment. Meaning you need to continue to give your child a measured dose of this product right. every day for the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. And there's also a resting period, my understanding, afterwards so you got to keep your kid still and I said okay well I get it and then they said but remember on vacation before the soccer game before the this before the that when they're sick when they're whatever this still has to happen otherwise as you said you do run the risk that the that the body will become the, the, the sensitivity will heighten and right so forth.
1: what they're getting at is uh, you know you don't you don't, <laughs> you don't need to keep the kid perfectly still. But Good, because that's not can, a possibility yeah, I with my say, child. Most kids can't. My child is part Tasmanian Devil,
0: so that's not happening.
1: I think that uh, you can't really exercise robustly. So it's important if kids are playing sports, because certain things lower your threshold for having an allergic reaction, and one of them is exercise. Um, so after an immunotherapy dose, we often recommend people don't exercise. Okay. So that's the rationale for that.
0: In your professional opinion, what it, what's the benefit of OIT? What is the benefit of these therapies? Um, and to put you on the spot, yeah, would you do it for your child?
1: So I think it's important to take a step back and, and say, when we talk about OIT, we're talking about a bunch of different things. And um, I guess as a disclaimer, um, in my practice and in my overall allergy practice, we don't do OIT because you know at this point it is not approved by the FDA. That's um, just something as a practice we don't do yet.
0: That's actually very common, by the way,
1: to that response. Right,
0: um, my son's. Allergist does not do it. Right. She doesn't have an opinion either way. We, we talk mom to mom. But right, sure. But as a practice, they don't do it.
1: We don't do it. And uh, for the last five to eight years or so, there have been allergists sort of in the community or in practice doing OIT. And I will say that I think my opinion may be of, uh, you know, I, I, I see where they're coming from. Um, but I would say an allergist choosing to do OIT, you know, it's a big undertaking. and It's not something that anybody should take lightly. So it's something that really the whole practice has to be geared up for. And it's tough to make a statement as to whether or not, um, you know, I think it's the right or wrong thing to do. I don't know that there is a right answer. But OIT sort of in that type of setting involves, you know, going to the grocery store getting foods and, you know, measured doses of peanut powder or peanut butter and sort of the outcome of that is often to be able to eat peanuts or whatever food so the kids that you know you know they always you know sort of tell their success stories and a lot of kids are able to eat the foods they're allergic to now there are a bunch of caveats with that uh, one I mentioned is that uh, you know you need to go to a practice that you know, I want to say pretty much only does that or mostly does that um, one of the big criticisms that's been raised of uh, that type of OIT is that, you know, these are kids that react to minuscule amounts of food allergens. So is it safe to be using the stuff that we get at the grocery store? You know, the, the amount of peanut protein and peanut butter varies significantly from jar to jar, teaspoon to teaspoon, and to use that as a measured dose sort of a, a medication. So that's something to consider. Um, and there are a lot of reactions to OIT. Uh, Physical reactions. Physical reactions. These, you know, entering an OIT protocol is not super um, low risk. And these are kids that typically get epinephrine for anaphylaxis uh, a few times. When you
0: say epinephrine, they're being shot in the leg with an EpiPen. They're
1: being given, yeah, an epinephrine injection um, during the treatment protocol. Because this is, uh, you know, I would say with, with subcutaneous immunotherapy, allergy shots, most of those patients don't get epinephrine but with oit a lot do so this is definitely something to consider um so that's sort of uh i guess practice based uh using foods oit i guess
0: stuff for parents to really consider
1: it is you You'd say it's stuff for them to consider or tough for them to consider i guess both i guess i said stuff but it is tough it it (laughs) is it is and then you have uh stuff that they are doing at Sinai. And again, I'm not, um, you know, I don't work for Sinai, so I'm not involved in what they're doing there. I do uh, know them very well. And and I think what they're doing is is very interesting. And I send patients up there sort of for this type of thing. Um, So I would say if you're interested in OIT, that would probably be a good place to go to talk about it. And it sounds like you had a good experience and they were raising some of the very real concerns about that. Um, you know a lot of or maybe another approach that they're doing is maybe finding a lower dose of Of uh, of a food allergen so for example when I do a food allergy Challenge in my office the way I describe it to patients is I say this is a yes or no challenge I want to see if you're allergic or not But maybe if you go into a more of an academic uh, research-based setting like Mount Sinai they may say you know I know if you go to Dr. Sporter's office, the dose, you know, you have to eat about two tablespoons of peanut That's butter. That's what we did, yeah. But uh, maybe this is a kid that could handle like half a teaspoon of peanut butter, and maybe that will increase over time. So you can kind of see conceptually how that kind of looks like an OIT approach, and some of it's probably semantics, and some of it is probably, you know, uh, assessing the right or selecting the right patients for this. Um, maybe you aren't super allergic. Um, and also selecting the right families. This is a treatment that is very cumbersome, as you are talking about, and uh, sort of labor intensive and, and not without risk of reaction. So I would say, um, you know, I guess you asked if I were interested in that, I would probably consult with a, a sender like myself. I thought Simon. you were gonna
0: say, consult with an allergist. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I would definitely
1: consult an allergist. You know, that's, you know, a place where I would, I would have a conversation with them and talk about, you know, they have a lot of research protocols going on again. You know, I don't, I don't work don't No, 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 no. That's yeah, their own but, thing.
0: You know, but yeah. the, I think I am like many parents. Mm-hmm. Here's what I want. If my kid can't have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or a peanut butter cookie, right. sucks to be you. I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. I really am. Right. What I don't want mm-hmm. is for him to go to school and take a bite of somebody else's. I don't want him right. to be on an airplane, which I know a lot of airplanes don't give peanuts anymore. Right. But way back in the day, for anybody old enough to remember, mm-hmm. you know, they used to give out packages of peanuts. Right. Um, the circus the 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 movie theater uh, my my toddler picks things up off the ground mm-hmm. at the mm-hmm. park which i know is probably bad but he's it's in his mouth yeah, before sure, i even realized right. it right and so that happens and my concern is if if it's hives it's again not mm-hmm. a great way to live but fine right we don't know where that line of anaphylaxis is or if matthew my son is even if his allergy is to the point where we even get there because my husband as I said, when he was very young, was rushed to the hospital. His mouth blew up, etc. But that's it. His whole life, that was the first time. And by and large, he avoided it. But he's had Marcona almonds mm-hmm. uh, by accident. Mm-hmm. And, and he had an itchy throat, and it never progressed. Right, right. So he's been able to keep his in check. That's what I want for my kid. And I think a lot of parents are in the same boat. If you're not going to be able to enjoy the most scrumptious peanut butter sandwich, then fine. We don't want you going into anaphylactic shock at school.
1: Right. So you uh, raise uh, two good points, uh, one of which is just sort of, uh, you know, the, the, the fear of anaphylaxis. That's a very real fear. And uh, that's something that's very important for families. And that would be an interesting sort of segue into the, the FDA approved products yes. in a second. But you also raise another good point about how, you know, this whole peanut, you um, peanut exposure on the airplane and you know every now and then you know you hear some media buzz about some story that you know they were eating peanuts in row you know 10 and the kid in row 18 had to land the airplane you know it's we generally believe that those sort of airborne exposures are uh not super common
0: is it a thing though i mean is airborne a real thing or is that myth
1: you know it's so much of it is nebulous and is gray area and if you're, you know, sitting next to a person who's eating peanuts and, you know, there's peanut around and that's could potentially pose a risk but I also like to reassure parents that, you know, not sitting in the immediate proximity of somebody who's eating peanuts it's probably an extraordinary, extraordinarily low risk. I mean, we all we all hear the people who go into red lobster and their throat gets itchy because they can sort of smell the shellfish in the air. Um, you know, it, that's that's uncommon stuff and I usually reassure parents. I, I tell people that my job is to take parents who are super anxious, just sort of reassure them a little bit and, you know, we talk about how to recognize allergic reactions and how to treat allergic reactions and they're prepared. And my also also my other job is to take parents who are sort of cavalier and kind of, you know, indicate that there is a risk for allergic reactions.
0: All right, let's get into the FDA stuff right. because that's what everybody's talking about now. Right. So my son's allergist mm. said hey if you don't want to go through oit mm. they don't do it at their practice you have to go up to sinai mm. um there are two fda uh, will we there are two treatments that are coming down the pipe right that will be fda approved in the next six eight months a yeah. year etc mm. um that could be a good fit one is the pill and the other is the patch right so tell me a little bit about these from your perspective who's a good fit what will it do what S- do you think
1: right so these are um these will be not yet these will be or are expected to be two fda approved treatments for peanut allergy and that is something that i will probably offer in my practice and a lot of allergists who who didn't do uh, sort of uh, regular oit uh, would probably offer if they feel comfortable and they want to offer that to their patients so that will offer an option and that's important for parents um so the two products so one product is an oral product and it is um i believe either a capsule you open and sort of sprinkle into the applesauce or something or a uh, sort of a packet and you you Mm -hmm. you know put the powder in and it's an oral product that the child takes every day and this is a product that uh, was tested i think they opened the study uh, through age like 55 but really the only the amount of patients they had in the study are mostly children. So really, it's it's going to be approved for children. And but when
0: you say child, children, my understanding mm-hmm. is that it's not going to be for anybody younger than four. Right.
1: It's four and up. And, so uh, my
0: kid would be out.
1: F- for, now. for now. For now. For now, yeah. So uh, it is a product that sort of like our traditional allergy shot model involves an updosing phase, a dose escalation phase, and then sort of a maintenance phase. So... The way allergy shots work, you get a higher and higher dose every week for a few months, and you get the standard dose, the maintenance dose, monthly for a few years. So this is kind of akin to that, where every time you get an up-dose, you would take that dose in the doctor's office. You would be monitored for a period of time, and then you'd go home and you'd take that same dose and, until it's time for the next up-dose, and then you would go home and you'd take the, you know, those doses. Kind of
0: like blood pressure medication, it seems, Well. in the sense of it's a maintenance drug.
1: Yes. Um, no, but, is that not uh, a good it, comparison? Well, the the other comparison, or the, the, the lack, or the difference is that, uh, you know, there are reactions they had seen.
0: Oh, yeah, of course. There's so that element and, to yeah, it.
1: And uh, yes, like, like uh, any other medication, it's something that you need to take all the time. And, you know, the questions will be, what if you miss a dose? What if you miss two doses? At what point do we have to lower back to the buildup dose? And these are all probably unanswered questions yet because when you have a clinical trial you, you know everything's sort of pristine in terms of the protocol so that's sort of what the the pill or the oral uh medication will look like and then there's a patch and the patch is called uh, epit or epicutaneous immunotherapy i so think of
0: like that nicotine patch that the smokers yeah people are trying to quit smoking use is that right what we're so thinking?
1: so that's that type of thing and um You know, that patch gives a drug uh, on the skin and this gives peanut protein on the skin. And uh, that patch is worn every day. And uh, initially, uh, I believe it's the same dose, but initially uh, patients would wear it for a few hours and then they would go up to um, more hours and then eventually they're wearing it for most of the day. And um, that is another product that's before the FDA right now. So I think the main thing to Talk about is how much protection do these things afford? You know, is this something where we can put on the patch or take the oral product, and then it's yeah, peanut butter cups for, for Halloween? Tolerance? And uh, well, everybody's striving for tolerance, but they really didn't show that these kids would be able to eat enough, sort of a meaningful amount of peanut. So, really, the amount of tolerance that they are measuring is uh, sort of at most around a gram of peanut protein. What does that mean? uh, What does that mean, right? So a peanut kernel is about... So if you open the peanut pod, so if you're at the baseball game, you open the peanut pod and there's two little peanut kernels in there. Each peanut kernel is about 250 to 300 milligrams of peanut protein. So if you think of one of those little nuts that you would put in your mouth as a peanut, um, so each one of those is about 300 milligrams of peanut protein. So we're sort of talking about... You know in the studies a percentage of patients increased the amount of peanut they were able to tolerate but we're talking on the order of peanuts we're not talking about enough to have a peanut butter cup we're talking about we're talking about a difference that would really be for an accidental ingestion so which is
0: what i was speaking about before right
1: so that's very meaningful but i think it's important to talk you know Anything we do in medicine, I think it's important to have a talk about what are your goals? And if your goal is to eat peanuts, then I don't think these products are going to be for you at this time. If your goal is to not have anaphylaxis, um, that's another conversation because kids in the studies had anaphylaxis. But if your goal is to be able to go out to a restaurant and tell them no peanuts, and if there's an accident, your kid will probably be okay, that's a reasonable goal.
0: I mean that sounds great to me.
1: Yeah, I mean that's a that's a reasonable goal for most families. People are scared to go out to to dinner.
0: I know so many kids that have peanut allergies mm-hmm. that, when I've discussed the idea of OIT right. or we've talked, you know, just mom to mom, parent to parent about some of the FDA approved treatments that are expected to come out, or the ones that are will be right. FDA approved, um, they told me their kids will. They have gotten to a place where they are so scared. Mm-hmm by what could happen if they ingest that allergen and right. typically it's a peanut that i was you know mm-hmm. discussing they they can't get their kid to to, to take this stuff right. they honestly they one of them is my cousin and sh- her daughter won't she would be a prime candidate as yeah. my understanding for this yeah. she won't touch it because she knows what will happen and I, and i often think to myself gosh but is she a kid that could get to a place where she could be somewhat desensitized but her her response is, my kid is already at a place where she avoids the food at all cost. I wonder right. if something like this would do her any good. And at the point, she's actually a teenager now, so would this even help a teenager?
1: Right, well, you know, I see people in my practice and I think, I say, wow, you know, I, based on this test, I, I don't know if you're still allergic to to this nut or that nut, or maybe you could have some of them but not the others. And a lot of people say, you know, I don't eat nuts. I'm 14, I don't I don't care. It's not important for me. So that's a concern. but. You also raise a very uh, good point that, you know, there's a lot of research done around the sort of the social aspects and the psychological aspects of food allergy. And, you know, kids are often scared and, uh, you know, they won't, you know, they bring them in for a food challenge and they won't eat it because they've been told their whole life that they can't have it. And um, these are very real things. And. You know, perhaps there's a role for these products in sort of alleviating some fear. You know, at the end of the day, we we want to make people's lives better and whatever that means for them and their families.
0: I actually read a stat that says that one in three kids experience bullying as a result of having a food allergy. And Mm. that breaks my heart because it's not easy being a kid these days. You're already getting it from every end with social media and this, Mm -hmm. that and the other thing. And now to think that a kid could go to school. And be bullied at the lunch table because of what their bodies will not physically allow them right. to digest.
1: Yeah, that's sad stuff. We see those uh, you know, some good studies on those, and it's it's the sad uh, reality of that.
0: But hopefully, these treatments and and maybe more would be even coming down the pike, right? So these are the first two that people are talking about. Right. But this is not the end,
1: right? So the patch uh, product is is uh, doing some studies for things like milk and egg. Now, as we discussed earlier, those are typically allergies, not always, but typically allergies that don't persist um, into adulthood. So, um, you know, we really are focusing on the nuts for a lot of them now. Um, I would assume the oral product is looking at that too. I'm not sure. But um, yeah, so right now, both of the products are really looking at peanut.
0: We're going to end it on one final note. So many parents that are listening to this, myself included, think... I don't have an allergy, and I can't believe I have a kid that's going through this, and gosh, there's so many things to parenting that are already so troubling. This just feels like one more thing on the plate. Do you believe, in your professional opinion, we will ever get to a point where after this drastic increase in allergies that we've seen over the better part of the last 20 to 30 years, that the numbers will start to trend in our favor, where the where the rates will come down right. and the instances of people with allergies will become less and less to the point where maybe we could actually cure this.
1: Right. I sure hope so. Um, you know, for two aspects. One, I think that, you know, this shift towards early introduction of foods um, is really positive and we're really going to see Um, a decrease in the incidence of food allergies. And you know, there's plenty of treatments on the horizon and we have never had an FDA approved treatment for food allergy. And now we are on the cusp of having two. So you know, what the next five years will bring is anybody's guess. And uh, you know, researchers are looking to a lot of fancy things that might hold the, uh, hold the answer. You know using uh sort of biologics or injectable drugs while people are on immunotherapy there's sort of a lot of different approaches so uh my hope is that uh yes we will we will at some point uh, get in that direction
0: i don't want to put you out of business okay but I'm really hoping. I'm
1: really hoping, too. I'm really hoping that
0: you've got a plan B because I would like my kid to be one of those kids. I'm really
1: hoping, too. I'm really hoping at least we can have some good things to help our patients with the allergies.
0: Dr. Sporter, where can people find you if they want to see you in person, if they have any other questions, or they just want to say hello?
1: So I am at the Fifth Avenue office of ENT Allergy Associates in Manhattan. That's on 5th between 28th and 29th. So I welcome anybody to come by and make an appointment and stop by. And are
0: you on social media? Can they find you online?
1: They can find our practice online. We have a website, and we are also on Instagram and Facebook.
0: Okay, thank you so much. Thank you. This is All Good in the Motherhood with Teresa Priolo, part of the Fox 5 Podcast Network. This episode was recorded, edited, mixed, made awesome by Matt Onimus. The executive producers are myself, Matt Onimus, and Imad Ashgar. Byron Harmon is VP of News, and our vice president and general manager of Fox 5 is Lulioni. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or comments, you just want to say hi, reach out to me on Twitter at Fox5Teresa or on Facebook, Teresa Priolo NY. And stay tuned for our next episode.